In this episode of Data Framed, a Data Camp podcast, I'll be speaking with Mike Tamir, head of data science at Uber ATG, Uber self-driving, a machine learning specialist and data science faculty at UC Berkeley. Mike and I will be talking about how he's leveraging data science and deep learning to build fake news detection algorithms, along with his work in building data science workflows for Fortune 500 companies. I'm Hugo Bowne Anderson, a data scientist at Data Camp, and this is Data Framed. Welcome to Data Frame, a weekly data camp podcast exploring what data science looks like on the ground for working data scientists and what problems it can solve. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugo Bound and Data Camp at Data Camp. You can find all our episodes and show notes at datacamp.com slash community slash podcast. Hey there, Mike, and welcome to Data Framed. Hi, good to speak with you. Such a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm really excited to, to be talking with you today about data science, about fake news, and how data science can also impact uh, the Fortune 500 companies. But before we get into all of this stuff, I'd like to know a bit about you. So can you tell me what you're known for in the data science community? Sure. Um, I, so I guess what what I'm probably uh, still, still best known for is, is the work I did with, uh, with Galvanize. Um, I, I was involved in some of the early days of creating some of those early master's programs, in particular the one at Galvanize, and also with the early data science immersive programs uh, through Galvanize. Uh, last couple of years, I've been, uh, I've been attacked working with uh, Fortune, Fortune 500 companies, uh, helping them to use their data at a, at a large scale. Uh, and then uh, very recently, I, I actually uh, switched over to Uber ATG, helping, uh, uh, I'm heading up the data science teams here, helping uh, to build self-driving cars. That's incredible, Mike. Congratulations on, on the new position. Thank you. And so today we're here to talk about um, a fake news uh, detector app that, that you're building and the work that you just talked about at, at TACT, um, working with Fortune 500 companies to use their data to improve their businesses. Of course, we're going to have to have you back on the show after you've settled at, at, at Uber to talk about all the self-driving stuff you'll be doing there. Of course, we'll be happy to. So let's talk about fake news. You're about to release an app that detects fake news. To my mind, at least, fake news sounds like a fact-checking challenge. Uh, how can data science help us to detect fake news? Yeah, it's a, that's a good question. And uh, <laughs> tr truth is a hard thing. We've uh, Humans have been trying to capture truth, at least uh, capture truth in writing for last 10,000 years. And um, I, I, I think that it's maybe a little bit too ambitious for a first project to create a fake news detector that is just a magic knows the truth AI. Um, we're, we we sort of decided to, to approach it from a different uh, a different angle. If you think about it, the, the gold standard for knowledge is direct observation, right? Because there's this sort of like seeing is believing, and, uh, though uh, you know evidently video clips and, and and images can be be doctored. Um, seeing firsthand is is maybe the 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 best way that you can uh, gain knowledge about something, at least if you see it enough. The problem is that that doesn't scale. And uh, most of human knowledge, in fact, I would say the majority of human knowledge is, is really uh, because of secondhand knowledge. Um, and if, uh, if you don't believe yourself, just think about some of the things, uh, some, some of the things that, that, uh, that you take for granted, scientific claims about, about uh, things like, like the earth going around the sun. And really ask yourself, 
why do I know that? And, and for the most part, it is going to be secondhand knowledge. Um, yeah, or the earth being round, right? Or the earth being round. Yeah, exactly. And, and there, there's a whole, a whole, uh, a whole laundry list of, of, of claims like this that we take for granted that we, we do believe because, um, you know, and we, we take them as scientific claims. But uh, if you really um, kick the tires, it's, it, it's not because we've done the experiments ourselves. It's because of credibility. And now that we have so many other ways of sharing information um, really easily, which is fantastic. It's fantastic for science. It's fantastic for um, for for data science, for for sharing um, uh, results, technical results, and for sharing open source code. Uh, it's also subject to a lot of abuse when it comes to news. Uh, and articles can prey on on very human, natural human reactions. And manipulate interpretation instead of just uh, giving the facts. Uh, I remember in uh, in grad school uh, there was this uh, this anecdote of you know, to sort of punctuate this, this point of how humans naturally react. And uh, you can imagine you you have two candidate ancestors. So so one of them walks into this cave and sees something dark and um, and a little uh, 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 you know bear shaped moving in the corner and stops and thinks, I'm going to really investigate this. I'm going to use a scientific method. I'm going to, I'm going to get more information before I come to a conclusion about what this is. And <laughs> the other one runs away. Uh, which one do you think survived and uh, ended up being your ancestor? And, and the, the answer is... Do you want me to answer that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, which do you think? You I, so the one, there, are two, there are two options to my mind. One, there is actually a bear there. So the one, the one that survives is the one that runs away. But I think maybe the point of the thought experiment is that they saw their own shadow and the one that pursues the scientific method understands the world better, can shelter themselves, can feed themselves and, and their society better. <laughs> your, 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 your response is actually a lot less cynical than, than I think, I think that, uh, Great. that the, then is suggested. Uh, what's suggested is that, um, you know, if we if we think about this at large scale, the human ancestors or the the um, Neanderthals, whatever it was that that ended up just getting out of there and, and reacting, um, maybe with less rational scrutiny um, when it came to things that were threats um, and things that they might be afraid of, were probably the ones that survived on average more and and uh, and then you know, evolved to become to become. I, I, I would believe that in my eternal optimism. <laughs> Yeah, and and that's that's a and and I believe this is this is pretty well studied um, by psychologists. That's something that exists that, that that humans do today. They um, when certain fear and other um, kinds of emotional triggers are are pulled, they stop being as rationally capable as they are usually day to day. And unfortunately, probably a lot of what we read uh, is is preying on that. Is preying on this this ability that with the right words and with the right fear tactics, you can turn off the cognitive and the uh, the, the 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 scrutiny that most knowledge sharing should have if you're really going to start believing stuff. Um, and so, so the point of of of, of this app or of this these algorithms, um, it's a it's a a, de- a deep learning algorithm, really a suite of them, uh, is to help detect that, help raise the flag of, hey, is this something that is trying to be journalism? Is this something that is trying to just tell us the facts and try to engage us on a, on a, on a cognitive level, engage us on a knowledge level? Or is this something that's, 
maybe doing something else. Maybe, um, or at least maybe, uh, you know, maybe it is journalism, but but they're straying too far out of uh, what's just the facts, and they're really straying into more more of a editorial or opinion or uh, sensationalism, conspiracy, uh, and you know, we also want to flag hate speech, of course. And what about? Satire. So I will. There are a lot of publications around that are. When I see The Onion, I know that it's going to be satire. But there are a whole bunch of uh, media outlets out there which are similar to The Onion, and I haven't heard of them. And I read an article. I'm like, was that? Is that the world being crazy, or is this a joke? <laughs> uh, yeah. So as part of uh, you know, we, we've been scraping data for for over a year now. Um, and there are, yeah, there are several satire sites, uh, out there. Um, the onion is a really good example and it, it's remarkable how, um, you know, it, it's not as, it, it's not as obvious as you think to detect the difference between, uh, what is satire, what is on the onion and what is, um, maybe just, uh, an everyday description of the facts. And, and, um, in fact, uh, depending on political leaning, you might think, think of all sorts of different websites that are, you know, maybe a little bit biased uh, against what, wherever, whichever part of the spectrum that you come from. Uh, but if you actually read the articles, um, and, and, and believe me, I've done this quite a bit over the last year, a lot of it's written as journalism. These subtle uh, parts where you stray out of that journalism zone, and, and you're maybe giving a little bit more opinion, maybe you're trying to influence more than share knowledge. Um, you know, that's something that really does take a little, a, another level of sophistication in your algorithms. So what will the experience be uh, of the app be like? What will the UI or UX be like? Sure. So, uh, so, so we're, we're still in the process of beta testing. Uh, the, the, the idea is that you either go directly to the website or there's, there's uh, going to be some, some uh, web browser extensions on Chrome, Safari, and Firefox, where you can actually just put the button in your web browser. You're reading an article. You say, is, is this really true? <laughs> or wondering if this is, some, if this is something that, uh, that, that is credible. And then you can just press that button in your browser. And um, Walt, who's uh, the, what we're calling the AI, will, uh, will give you a readout along those various dimensions. Great. So along those dimensions of, is it journalism? Is it opinion? Is it hate speech, editorial, sensationalism, these types of things? Exactly. Exactly. So I just want to delve a bit deeper into what's happening in, in, in the back end. You mentioned that there's some sort of deep, deep learning at play. Would you, could you just tell us a bit about what deep learning is and how it can be used to analyze text in this case? Absolutely. Um, so, so deep learning, very generally, I think has come to mean uh, any sort of any sort of neural net algorithm, uh, largely or, or broadly construed, um, that has uh, several different layers. And this is in just the past few years gone from um, when I when I first started. Uh, if I if I had suggested to <laughs> to my boss in industry, hey, let's let's use a deep learning algorithm, um, I, I I would have been reprimanded and told to go back to academia. Now. Uh, if you're, if you're not using deep learning hours and I'm not at least considering them for tasks, then you're probably not doing your job if you're someone uh, in a position like mine. And, and, and so this, is, this has been a, a dramatic change because of attention, because of algorithmic technology um, improvements, and also because of uh, the ability in terms of hardware and uh, an open source tooling that we can now create neural networks with several layers of processing, several layers of hidden neurons that will take in that raw data and take in maybe minimally uh, prepared data and then 
manipulate it and transform it and reshape it into a way that um, that an algorithm can now tell the difference between um, uh, you know a data point that is of one type, for instance, or a data point that is another, of another type. So let me let me uh, maybe uh, be a little bit more concrete about this. Imagine you have you have uh, an article uh, which is which is essentially a, a, a list of words and, and a list of words in order. The first thing you want to do is when you're talking about about a machine learning algorithm, you need to represent those words um, not not as necessarily as as strings of letters, but as as numbers, and, and in particular as as a, as a, a vector or a, a list of an ordered list of numbers, each of which um, has, has sort sort of locates that that um, that word um, in a certain space that the. That the, that the uh, algorithm can can interpret. Um, so you can think about that, like you know, like the, the x axis and the y axis. Those would be uh, a two dimensional vector. And so you need to, as a first step, process these words and put them into this uh, vector shape into in, into this mathematical representation. And then you need an algorithm, a deep learning algorithm, typically to um, to actually read those words represented mathematically. The best algorithms will now be able to do it in order and then answer questions about if I see this sequence of vector words um, in order, what does that mean? Is it a text? Is, is this text about opinion or is this does this text look more like uh, like, like examples you've seen that are uh, more fact based? That's awesome. That's a great explanation. So the, the basic idea is to take a text, turn it into its words in order. And because machine learning algorithms such as neural nets, deep, deep learning algorithms are good at taking in numbers, you convert them into vectors, put them through, and then the neural network will output after putting it through these layers, which may reshape, extract certain features, these types of things, output, whether it thinks it's with some sort of probability, opinion or editorial or journalism, that type of stuff. Yes, exactly. Um, and then uh, all the fun comes in with figuring out different ways that uh, different kinds of neural nets that are going to read that text mathematically um, processed uh, uh, um, into vectors and, and figure out figure out how to answer those questions. And, and um, we, we found that all sorts of different uh, strategies work um, for different kinds of questions. So where are people going to be able to get get this app when it's when it's launched? In the uh, the Chrome web extensions or Firefox uh, web extensions, they should be able to do that, or they can just go to the website, which is uh, fakerfacts.com um, is, is the actual name. <laughs> and we'll include that in the show notes as well. We'll jump right back into our interview with Mike after a short segment. Let's now dive into a segment called The Double-Edged Sword of Impact with Frederica Schur, Research engineer at Cloudera Fast Forward Labs. Hi, Frederica. Tell us, what is the double-edged sword of impact? Hi, Hugo. Data scientists and machine learning engineers build solutions that scale. We have the privilege to touch many people's lives with our work. With scale comes impact, and with impact come thorny questions. Our work can be used for the good and the bad. That is the double-edged sword of impact. While we may not be trained ethicists, at Cloudera Fast Forward Labs, we believe that engineers, too, carry responsibility to think about how their work may be used or abused. Today, I would like to talk about the data ethics of recommender systems. Great. 
So we all interact with recommender systems on a daily basis, whether it be Netflix telling me what to watch or Amazon suggesting products to me. Before we dive into the associated ethical challenges, can you tell me a bit about why recommender systems exist and what problems they solve? As of January 2018, according to Scrapeero, Amazon had over 500 million products on sale. The amount of physical and digital goods, as well as news and entertainment media content available to us has increased greatly with the popularity of online retailers, websites, and social media platforms. With greater variety comes the problem of discoverability. The sheer volume of distinct products makes it hard for us to find the ones we may like or want. Recommenders help us navigate a world full of variety, novelty, and choice. So what are potential ethical challenges associated with recommender systems? Recommenders are powerful. They guide what products we buy and what content we consume. For example, an informed citizenry is a crucial component of a well-functioning democracy. Society relies on the news media for information. Increasingly, recommendation systems guide the news we consume. So, the design and deployment of recommender systems requires thought to ensure that they are actually helpful, not harmful, that they inform, not misinform, or even in the extreme, isolate us. For example, in 2010, internet activist Eli Parisa coined the term filter bubble to describe the personalized ecosystem of information delivered to a user by search and recommendation systems that filter the content through the lens of past behavior. A related concept is that of the eco-chamber, where people with similar viewpoints share and discuss informational ideas in a self-reinforcing manner, leading to the exclusion of other perspectives. Okay, so why should we be concerned about filter bubbles and eco-chambers? Concepts like filter bubbles and eco-chambers highlight a growing concern that algorithms could contribute to a world in which people are exposed to less diverse viewpoints over time. In 2013, the EU high-level group of media freedom and pluralism noted that, I quote, increasing filtering mechanisms make it more likely for people to only get news on the subjects they're interested in and with the perspective they identify with, end quote. Recommender systems may create, contribute to, or even seal filter bubbles or eco chambers, especially new embedding-based recommender systems that solve the cold start problem. And what's the cold start problem? The cold start problem refers to the particular challenge of recommending new items. Traditionally, recommender systems make use of how others like you have interacted with items to determine which one you may like and want to see. With new items, there's no history of interactions and consequently they were hard to recommend. To establish user history, developers would expose users to new items randomly. Embedding-based recommender systems take into account not just behavior, but also aspects of the to-be-recommended item, for example, the content of a book. By doing so, they solve the cold start problem and remove the possibility of a chance encounter. They can, potentially, further decrease the diversity in our new style, for example. So what are ways we can then combat the potentially harmful effects of personalized search and recommendation systems? One way is to include exposure diversity as a design principle for these systems. That means the diversity of items and the set of recommended items becomes one of the aspects a recommender system learns to optimize for. Exposure diversity may help foster our collective ability to digest diverse viewpoints for civil discourse, for example, and even reduce confirmation bias, the human tendency to search for, interpret, favor and recall information in a way that confirms one's pre-existing beliefs or hypotheses. 
to be fair to algorithms, individual choices about what content to consume, especially when it comes to news media, have always been subjects to factors such as confirmation bias. What really excites me is the use of technology to reduce, not foster such biases. Exposure diversity may serve as preference inconsistent recommendations that are known to trigger critical thinking patterns that can help overcome such bias. Thanks, Federica, for that introduction to the ethical considerations surrounding recommender systems. We'll be back later in the episode to dive deeper into this. After that interlude, it's time to jump back into our chat with Mike Tamir. So I'd like to talk about some of the work you, you've done at, at TACT, because I think TACT does something incredibly interesting in that people... A gen- when people think about data science, people think about tech companies such as Facebook and Airbnb and, and, and Google and how they use a lot of data to make business decisions. But of course, there are lots of businesses that have been around since before the tech boom, since before the internet existed, actually, that mm-hmm. can be fundamentally changed using data science with all the, the data they have and to influence business decisions in, in, in their companies. And your tax flagship company is, is Starbucks, for example. So I'm wondering what type of questions can data science answer for these companies? Yeah, uh, and that's uh, very well put. Uh, so when you have a company like Starbucks, uh, who's been around for for even before the internet, <laughs> they do have a lot of a lot of data about their users, and in particular, they, you know, they, they have a lot of touch points with a lot of different uh, different users, different <laughs> in digital, you might call them users. These are customers. These are people that are walking in and buying cups of coffee, right, um, and other stuff, and so. If you're a company like Starbucks, what you want to do is change that level of engagement. Um, and I think I think one of the things that maybe is a little bit um, different from what people think about when they think about the space of recommendations, they, they might think about the Netflix prize, which is now a 10-year-old paradigm where uh, you have a static set of items like movies uh, and a set of users who have given you explicit feedback about those movies. I like it. I, I like them. I don't like them. Um, five stars or zero stars or somewhere in between. Uh, and then the job of recommendations is kind of to figure out how they would explicitly rate other other uh, items, other products, other movies. Um in practice, uh, for for uh, you know, for a situation like Starbucks or some of the other clients that that Attack uh, um, works with, uh, it's it's very different, uh, and it's very different for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, you usually don't get this explicit feedback. You usually don't get people star rating um, their cups of coffee or their their sandwiches. Uh, what you get is what's called the implicit data, um, and that's data that. Uh, they, they they either bought it or they didn't buy it. Uh, and it could be very dangerous thinking about, well, if they didn't buy it, does that mean they don't like it? Or does that mean that you haven't recommended to them and they would really would like it? So that's one of the... Um, one of the big changes between, uh, you know, what, what is the traditional Netflix prize recommender paradigm and uh, what you actually see in practice. I just have a quick question with respect to this. With, with Netflix, it's clear to me how... Companies such as Netflix or digital companies track their, their users or customers. How, how do companies such as Starbucks, you don't have to speak in, specifically to Starbucks if that, you know, I don't want you to reveal any, any, uh, any strategy necessarily, but how would a company that sells things uh, track its customers? 
Yeah. So, uh, so, so, and this is pretty common across, uh, you know, across most businesses, even businesses that that didn't start out um, uh, weren't born as digital businesses like uh, like Netflix or Google or Amazon is is loyalty programs. Uh, you know, m- most uh, you know if you go to uh, your local grocer, you probably use a loyalty card. Uh, most most people do at least. Um, your, your you know CVS and and Rite Aid have have loyalty programs. Your airlines have loyalty programs, um, and so any of those companies are the kinds of companies. Companies that have a lot of data and have been tracking, maybe even before the pre-internet days, um, been tracking data about about individual customers and what their patterns are. And now, in an age where machine learning is fast becoming the standard, not the exception, uh, they need to. And, and there's a lot of opportunity to to really monetize that, and not in a, um, in a a mischievous way, but in a way that's probably better for the customers too. So what type of recommendations could Starbucks or CVS or whatever it may be make or what type of how, – how could they improve the experience for the customer or the business for themselves uh, using this type of data? Right. So, so one thing that, that, is, um, that is pretty natural is, is just surfacing – uh, what else would be uh, would would this person like like right? What else would be of interest to them? What else would they want to put in their their shopping cart? If you're a grocer and you um, you figure out what the kinds of for instance, tastes are of, of a shopper, you might be able to recommend whole recipes. Um, or you might be able to recommend how to round out a diet because they tend to like these tastes and they ate this and this and this um, earlier in the week. And maybe that maybe that means they'll also want to add this and maybe be able to uh, complete a shopping cart or even detect when something's forgotten off of a shopping cart. All of those different things are well within the capabilities once you have this data through something like a loyalty program. Starbucks is really interested in, uh, much like frequent flyer programs and other loyalty programs, having uh, developing these these positive relationships that are pretty regular, pretty uh, um, you know habitual, not necessarily in, in the bad way, but in the way that uh, you know most of what we do is out of habit. And if you are used to going to uh, to get your cup of coffee at the corner. Starbucks say, and you go every day, then you're going to continue to go to make those choices every day. And so that's something else that that uh, that when you move from maybe this artificial, say, historical Netflix prize paradigm and into what happens in practice when you're starting to recommend things to customers is thinking about it uh, not just in a static or stationary moment of time, but thinking about sequences of interactions over time. Uh, and, and so with Starbucks, you, you might come in once a week, every week that, you know, that we would generate their, uh, their star games and their recommendations. And uh, when you open up the, up the Starbucks app and we would put in then configure those interactions in a way that over time, uh, you know, algorithms like reinforcement learning algorithms can learn what will tend to develop those kinds of relationships. Cool. So do you, do you use reinforcement learning in, in particular uh, for these types of questions? Uh, so, so I cannot speak specifically about what we use for Starbucks, but sure, uh, I can't say that uh, this sort of paradigm is, is uh, pretty ripe for uh, reinforcement learning. Um, uh, and, and just for, 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 for people who are not familiar with reinforcement learning, the, the, whole, I, the whole idea of, of that genre of machine learning is that uh, you aren't necessarily thinking about immediate uh, immediate rewards. So if uh, if I was just doing supervised learning, I might say, um, you know, which which ads got the more got most clicks, 
right then and there. Um, and then I'm going, that's going to be my target function. That's what I'm going to train my algorithm to try to, to optimize for. Um, reinforcement learning is a little bit longer term uh, in, ter- in terms of scope. So uh, Go is, uh, the, or AlphaGo, and, and um, you know, winning a game uh, uh, with an opponent is, is, falls a little bit more into that kind of genre where you might take a move on step three and you don't know, or at least the algorithm does not know if, if that's the winning move. Um, they don't know if they won until the end of the game. And so the whole idea is to come up with different policies and to tune those policies um, and also to estimate if they're on the right track for winning or not. This is a, um, a function called the value function. And to make decisions and tweak the value function and the policy in order to get to that point. So you might think uh, if, you're, if you're doing data science for a loyalty program, maybe it's trying to get, uh, get a customer to, to one of these, uh, these frequent flyer type uh, engagements or to be an everyday user of, of a certain form. And that's the, uh, that's what the value function is trying to target. And that's what this, um, this policy engine, this machine that, that the machine learning algorithm is, uh, is using is going to keep trying to optimize towards rather than just selling one more cup of coffee. That was a great description of reinforcement learning. And that coupled with your great description of, of deep learning, I think, leads me to ask you about deep reinforcement learning as, as, as a burgeoning field. And I, it's a slight detour from our discussion about, about Starbucks and Fortune 500. But what, what are your views on, on, on the current state of deep reinforcement learning, which is a combination of deep learning and reinforcement learning, right? Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's it terribly popular in, in all the good senses. Um, it, it's it's more and more a very um, you, you're, there's it's a very active uh, area of research. Uh, it's also as well as um, as uh, self learning, self architecting, uh, deep learning algorithms, and uh, the whole idea there is uh, you know I think maybe the most popular version of this is uh, what's called Q learning. Um, and so remember I, I mentioned. Uh, what you want to do, say, if you're, 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 you're the AlphaGo algorithm, is figure out, am I on track now? Do I have and am I making the right decisions now that keep me on a steady trajectory towards winning the game at the end of the game? And so what you do for that is, is you have this very deep and sophisticated neural network that's looking at all sorts of different things and going through all sorts of transformations and processing of that data um, from one time step to another time step. And if you are making a good estimate at time one or time five, uh, then at time that at the in the next time step, your your estimate, your your view of where, whether you're on track should be the same, right? At every time step from your first time step to your last time step, your estimate of am I on track for winning the game, for instance, uh, should be steady. At least that's the goal. That would be, uh, that's what you want to get out of, um, out of value function. Uh, and so, so, you, so you use this, um, this, ter- this, this value function Q and you have an, a deep learning net that that's going to kind of estimate that Q. And then Q learning is really just a process of have a deep learning algorithm. It estimates Q. You look at the next step, it estimates Q again. And what it's trying to learn is not just if it's making good estimates, but also is it keeping things steady? Does Q stay the same over time? And that's uh, that's one of the ways where you, you kind of merge this reinforcement learning, looking for a value function with, um, with deep learning, which is really, uh, in the end, a, a way of, because we have so much more data and so much more time, we can 
have so many more parameters, so many more hidden neurons, so many more layers in our neural net to, to really capture those different parameter values or, or the, the different nuances in the data. And I think speaking to this idea of the amount of data we now have uh, and the amount of computational power we now have is incredibly interesting, as we were saying before, for for the tech space. But is this something that is really impacting the companies that you've, you've been been working with? So, so certainly there is, you know, there, there is one thing that, that, that you definitely need, um, along with plenty of compute power infrastructure and, and, um, and, and good, good, uh, good data scientists who can actually build the algorithms is you need a lot of data. If you, if you don't have a lot of data, then, um, you're just not going to be able to support, you're not going to be able to give enough examples that for all those different degrees of freedom that your, your, your neural network can take, uh, for all those different parameter values, uh, picking which one's the right one. One, um, you need the, the the more you have, the more decisions that the algorithm has to make when you're training it, when you're configuring it, the more examples it needs in order to make those right decisions reliably again and again, especially on data it's never seen before. And so, this is just to say that the more the more the bigger your your neural net, the more data you need. And so, I'm, I'm aware you can't necessarily speak to what what actual companies uh, you, you've worked with at at Tact, but what what types of companies are we talking about, and what type of impact do we see on the ground for for consumers and and, and civilians? Um. Yeah, so so there's there's quite a bit. Tact in particular uh, is is not a very old company, but but can has has the uh, the good fortune of being able to operate as a slightly less less close to start startup um, because you can really gain a, a lot of traction and make a lot of um, of quite measurable changes uh, when you. Uh, when you start doing these algorithms, uh, especially when you start doing these algorithms from a place where maybe you weren't using them or using something similar to them in the past, uh, that that first step is always uh, you you always are pleasantly surprised by how by how much uh, a change in performance you can get. So let's drill down a bit without getting too technical into the types of algorithms and technologies that you like and and use. What's what's one of your? I hesitate to ask. What's one of your favorite things? But what what do you really enjoy getting in, into the weeds with? I think there there are two different uh, neural net strategies, or or I, I even hesitate to say if uh, um, one of them is not strictly speaking um, in neural nets is uh, LSTMs, uh, which is a kind of recurrent neural network. Um, stands for LSTM, uh, long short term memory. Has uh, is is a very, very popular one. There, there's some, some great um, articles out there that are referenced all the time. One of them uh, is, uh, uh, I believe, Karpathy's blog, where he says that, um, you know, the unreasonable effectiveness of, of LSTMs. And, and in a lot of ways, that's right. Uh, and Karpathy is now a Tesla, right? For those that don't, don't know Andre Karpathy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And has a, an absolutely phenomenal blog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so what the, a recurrent neural network is a kind of deep learning network where uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of like an infinitely deep neural network in a way that um, you have this uh, recurrent unit that processes something in sequence, so like a time series or a string of words. Uh, and LSTMs is a specific kind of recurrent neural network that is able to 
keep track of things like when it needs to keep paying attention to what's been happening and when it can reset or maybe pay less attention, maybe not remember as much long short-term memory about what's been happening. Um, and one uh, text is actually one of the um, the, the greatest, uh, one of the best examples for why that can be effective. Uh, if you think about uh, a sentence, um, you know, the way our grammar works is, is uh, you know, we speak in terms of sentences and there's a, those are, those are sort of like complete thoughts um, with, uh, with a period at the end. And at the end of a period, while you might conti- continue with another sentence that is relevant and, and to the context, something has changed from one sentence to another. And LSTMs, because of the way that they're designed, are able to kind of reset in the right way, in the way that, that, that some, or at least some, something similar to um, the way that we reset when we think about, oh, this is a new sentence, it's going to have a new subject, it's going to have a new verb. Now, LSTMs don't think in terms of subjects and verbs, but they are able to pick up those patterns of when's the right time to, to forget and when's the right time to remember. If someone was just starting out to try to build some LSTMs or with deep learning or neural network architectures, what would you suggest they, how would you suggest they approach this? Ah, well, there are there is a a wealth um, uh, truly of, of different uh, of different resources out there for getting started on your first LSTM. Certainly, uh, one of the most popular ways right now is is uh, with Keras front end, um, and uh, now it's uh, typically a TensorFlow back end. Although there's bindings for um, for a lot of the other open source ones, including uh, Theano, which is no longer under active development. DL4j has a back end to back end bindings for. Um, for Keras, but Keras, if you're just getting started uh, and and you want to use Python, is a really easy way of building up your neural net quickly and, and playing around with it, getting your hands dirty, so you get to get, start getting developing your intuitions about what works, and what doesn't work. And a bit of shameless self promotion, we actually have a, a deep learning course which teaches the fundamentals of Keras. And I'm not doing this only for shameless self promotion, but we have a course on DataCamp. But the course is taught by Dan Becker, who's now at Kaggle and, and Google, who was who introduced me to you originally, Mike. So it comes full circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan, Dan and I had a chance to work closely uh, uh, back in Galvanize, actually. Yeah. So. Were the LSTMs, are these the types of things you, if it's great for text data, is this the type of thing you thought about um, when developing the fake, fake news detector? Absolutely. And and uh, if uh, the, so, so one of the algorithms that really has, really changed the game as far as text uh, text is concerned um now <laughs> one way to think about it is if um if pre 2013 was uh it was called natural language processing now you 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 see the uh you see you see the the phrase uh, natural language understanding and i think that that um kind of captures that uh, there, there's been a dramatic shift in our ability to work with text and it's because of uh what are called uh, of the of these um Algorithms that embed words as vectors, and um, you know the most popular one or the most well-known one is called Word2Vec. That lets you represent a word as a vector, as a sequence of numbers, um, where the order matters, and then you can do mathematical operations on those on those sequences of numbers. LSTMs are one of the better ways of actually doing that, not on the not on the word level, but on the sentence level, on the sequence of words level. And it's not just it's not just doing something like taking the average, um, where where uh, you know if you t- if you if you take an average of of two vectors, then order doesn't matter because because um, you're, you're summing things up, and 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 I can I can add a to b, or I can add b to a, and the, the, the sum is the same. Um, LSTMs are able to do it in order. 
Yeah, and the example I always give of that is you want to remember order a lot of the time. I mean, bag of words only gets you so far, but the example I give is build bridges, not walls, is the same, contains the same words as build walls, not bridges, right? And the meaning great example. Yeah. is entirely opposite. Mm-hmm. Another good example of that is the difference between a question and an answer. So uh, Jack and Jill are going up the hill and are Jack and Jill going up the hill? If uh, Especially if you don't help yourself to punctuation, uh, those are the same words, just in different orders. But in English in particular, the order matters a lot. That's a great example. So what we're actually talking about there is not quite word to vec, but maybe even sentence to vec. Sentence to vec. And oh, while wow, that, that, um, that particular uh, – oh, you know, there is, there is, to my knowledge, no census effect. There probably is one. Yeah. No, no, I'm not, um, I don't think there is. But. Uh, LSTMs is a way of embedding sentences and turning vectors into sentences. What they can do is encode the different words in order, look at them in that order because they're good at remembering the order and keeping track of that, and then outputting a vector representation that is sort of the um, the, the the process of that entire sequence. And actually, um, you, you, you tend to, to do that, as, uh, um, t- they tend to work best when they read it forward to backwards and backwards forwards, and you call those bidirectional LCMs. And uh, the result of that is actually a, a one double long vector that captures the meaning of the sentence in, in, in very effective ways. Um, and then you can keep going. So now that you have, once you have a process that can um, turn uh, vectors into a, 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 a lots of vectors in order into another vector um, that kind of captures what all those vectors in order mean, mean uh, you can keep going. So you can turn words into sentences, sentences into a paragraph vector, paragraphs into an article vector. Uh, and then pretty soon you, you've got, you've got one sequence of numbers that represents what an entire um, piece of text, a non-higher body of text, like an article that you might find on the New York Times or on uh, on Fox News, uh, is saying, and, and and you can start uh, detecting the subtleties between those kinds of those kinds of texts. Um, now there are all sorts of other kind of um, really brilliant uh, architectural. Uh, um, uh, changes and 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 um, and improvements that you can make to that general framework um, you can you can build in things that will tell you well which words matter most which ones uh, should you pay most attention to these called intention mechanisms which sentences are are most important uh, but but they really do um, you know once you start having this general uh, th- this general technique you can do things that honestly I didn't think we would be able to do in We'll jump right back into our interview with Mike after a short segment. I'm back here with Frederica Schur to talk more about the ethical considerations surrounding recommender systems in our segment, The Double-Edged Sword of Impact. Frederica, you mentioned confirmation bias, a human bias. Algorithms can be biased too. Does this apply to recommender systems? Yes, Recommenders can encode biases and perpetuate unwanted or harmful behavior. For example, generally, recommenders are evaluated with a focus on the system's overall effectiveness. Larger subgroups tend to dominate overall statistics. So the satisfaction of a dominant user group is weighted more heavily than that of minority groups, which can lead to inferior recommendations for select groups. This is a form of discrimination. What's more, With recommender systems, we have to think about fair treatment of multiple stakeholders, producers of items, and consumers of recommendations. And ideally, we'd achieve fair treatment for all. 
And how can we combat recommender system bias? Removing bias is hard because it forces us to tackle some hard questions. What is fairness, for example? Earlier this month, at a conference on fairness, accountability, and transparency in socio-technical systems, I learned about 21 different notions of fairness. And even if we could agree on one definition, how can we measure fairness quantitatively? How could we incorporate fairness into the loss function of an algorithm to ensure it learns to be accurate and fair? But hard questions should not deter us from attempting to find solutions. Any improvement on the status quo is a win, even if it falls short of perfection. The 21 different notions of fairness offer us a catalogue of ideas that inform us about all the ways the system can be unfair. It can help reason through and detect unwanted system behaviour. Ongoing and exciting work on quantitative measures of fairness and fair loss functions promise real progress. We recommend the use and development of tools to audit and test recommendation engines for bias, both during development and once deployed. Imagine unit tests, a testing framework for computer code, but for the fairness of algorithms. Carnegie Mellon, for example, developed AdFisher, a tool that runs automated experiments on personalized ad settings to surface bias in how Google serves ads to users. One of their discoveries, gender-based discrimination in job-related ads. I've also heard about the ability to game the algorithm. Can you tell me what this means? Recommender systems can be designed or gamed for economic benefit rather than for best serving the needs, wants and interests of producers and consumers. For example, retailers and content producers selling their wares on aggregator websites or through social media platforms where they compete with others can game recommenders to recommend their products and their content over others. Shilling attacks, for example, are malicious attempts to change recommendations by inserting fake user profiles into user item matrices that are at the heart of many recommenders. Imagine lots of fake users with a strong liking of the attacker's product. It'll increase the ranking of the product in behavior-based recommendation systems. Recently, we've seen another kind of gaming, content expressly designed to be favored by recommendation engines. I highly recommend James Brindle's blog post, Something is Wrong on the Internet, a post about odd kids' videos on YouTube. With ever faster and more inexpensive forms of content generation, from cheap 3D animation to fully algorithmically generated content, videos designed to be favored by recommender systems may crowd out real, often more appropriate or informative content, yet prove lucrative to their creators because of their high ranking by YouTube's recommender. Recommendation engines, of course, can and are gamed for ideological reasons too. For more on this topic, I recommend the work by Data and Society on media manipulation and disinformation in the online world. And what more can we do? While we may not all be developers of recommender systems, we certainly are users of recommenders and consumers of recommendations. We can challenge ourselves to overcome confirmation bias and consciously adopt a more balanced news diet. We can read across partisan lines. We can use incognito browsers and search engines like DuckDuckGo that do not store personal information and do not track users. As we interact with content on media platforms, we can report fraud and abuse to companies to help reduce malicious activity on their site and products and, perhaps more importantly, contribute to public pressure in case companies fail to act on this information. Finally, 
we can take part in the public debate on what is and what isn't fair and what is and what isn't appropriate content. We should not shy away from difficult questions. We should share our perspectives and help elevate voices that may struggle to make themselves heard on what is plainly a complex issue. Solutions will require diverse perspectives and collective effort. Thanks, Frederica, for that valuable introduction to the ethical considerations of modern recommender systems. It's a pleasure. Speak next time. Time to get straight back into our chat with Mike. I'd like to step back a bit and go to more general uh, data science projects. And I'd like to ask you what, what data science projects have you been involved in that you consider the most impactful on society or, or telling about society? Sure. And, and I, I definitely, my, my mind immediately goes to this, uh, this fake news uh, uh, project that we've been working sure. on for the past year. The, so, so, so there are a lot of, a lot of, subtleties to uh, processing text and being able to detect fake news remarkably and, and this this is something that I think is is, is interesting uh, about about society in general is one of the categories that I mentioned uh, you know there's there's opinion and there's there, there's editorial and sensationalism and things like that uh, and there's also detecting hate speech and one of the things that we found that you, you can do um, there are you can make marginal improvements and I've gone through a lot of um, very sophisticated very cutting edge um, algorithms that you can try in, in building a, um, a fake news detector like this. Uh, in order to detect hate speech, uh, it, you don't need that. Uh, you, you actually can use uh, technology that existed five years ago and become uh, and, and get results that are almost as good. And and that that, that sort of says something about hate speech uh, that these uh, that, that the kind of things that distinguish hate speech um, from 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 uh, from from non hate speech is uh, very is in a way cut and dry. Now you need to do other things um, because what you can get where you can get caught up is if you're quoting. Uh, um, somebody. Uh, so, so, so if a if a real journal journalism article is trying to tr- tr- is trying to report on something that is that that, that is hateful, that then it, it's you, you do need to put in a lot of work to to make sure that you're not accidentally seeing the things that they're reporting on and, and tacking that as uh, as hate spe- uh, that hate as part of the uh, the journalism. And what are the traditional approaches for identifying hate speech? Pre uh, pre word to vec, uh, you know the, the way that you would uh, you would represent words is um, may, maybe one of the, the 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 most baseline ways you would represent words is is just by um, having every every word gets its own number, right? So or, or gets its gets its own its own position in a list of numbers. So um, you might think, uh, well, there's about a million words in the English vocabulary, um, <laughs> or at least that many, uh, th- that order of magnitude words in the English vocabulary. So you might think, oh, I've got a list of a, of a million words. And um, the first word, well, we can order them alphabetically. The, the, the first uh, number in that list corresponds to the word A. And the second number of that list corresponds to the word um, an and so forth. And, and the problem is that when you represent all of those words in, in that very, very, very long list of numbers at the very, very high dimensional vector, um, you end up losing a lot of the information. You're sort of like spreading it out over too many dimensions, over uh, uh, too finely uh, for, the number, for the amount of data that you have. And so there are a lot of ways of, of, of dealing with that. Some are just to drop some of the, the information, drop some of the words that you never really use that often. Or to to maybe count certain spots for more than one word and um, uh, with with certain hashing tricks, 
but it turns out that what what does happen when you use even those traditional ones where you're, you're really not processing significance of where of, of that mathematical representation you're really just counting how many occurrences of a different kind of word there are just the presence of the of the frequency of that count of that word of that that hateful word in particular is enough to um to to clearly indicate if it's um if it's hate speech or not right so this is essentially a bag of words model right that's right yeah and so we're just taking frequencies of of words and then i presume some sort of do you, can you cluster a lot of the hate speech together in whatever space that's created there it's not as much a clustering because clustering really has to do with relative position of, of all those other words, which, which you know, the, the non-hate speech words, um, there might be a lot of them, there might be a, a few of them, uh, but there are some very specific kinds of words that if they occur, then um, it's a very strong signal. And if they don't occur, then 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 it's probably not going to capture, it might, it might be, you know, it, there are all sorts of stud- subtleties, but it's probably not going to be classified strictly speaking as, as hate speech um, and at least in the examples that we've detected from the sites that we've been scraping and you can still process that through all these uh, these very sophisticated word to vec and uh, LSTMs and start to see more sophisticated patterns of the entire um, article uh, but it turns out that there's a, there, there are some very strong signals um, that that are uh, both necessary and sufficient so essentially the traditional approach would it be bag of words followed by some sort of naive bays or yeah, bag of words followed by naive bays or ba- bag of words. Then you represent it as this um, th- this long th- th- this long vector. Um, there there are all sorts of um, frequency patterns that you see about words. So the most used words get used way more than the, all the other words, uh, but by many multiple times. So you have to you have to kind of turn down the volume there, um, and you want to, you want to turn up the volume a little bit on on the the less frequent words. And so there's all sorts of ways that you can you can process that. Um, often uh, you'll hear. Um, TFIDF um, term frequency inverse document frequency to that that is a nice strategy for manipulating those the, the way we numerically represent uh, gross counts of words yeah and then you can feed those into into algorithms although you still run into this uh, high dimensionality problem and, and and that's why word to vec is so so much better in so many other examples so we've discussed a lot about modern data science and how the landscape of data science looks today. What does the future of data science look like to you, Mike? Well, um, as you as you can tell from some of the things I've been focusing on, uh, text is uh, is I I believe going to continue to grow by leaps and bounds. Um, you know, twenty fifteen is is now the olden days <laughs> in terms of text, and uh, in twenty thirteen when some of these embedding algorithms came down, that's that's almost like a turning point in in um, our ability uh, as, as a profession to deal with text. And on almost a quarterly basis, new, really awesome algorithms and techniques that I'm excited to try are coming out. And uh, I, I have no doubt that that's going to continue to improve. Um, and, and so things like Google Translate and, um, and, and, and uh, different, different uh, fake news detector um, technologies, the sorts of things that um, will be able to counteract all of the... Um, all, all of the the different mischievous behaviors that 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 bad actors can do, if we focus our efforts and you know call to any students who are looking to <laughs> to become data scientists to to learn machine learning, um, you know, powering or, or putting our best minds and powering that effort versus um, maybe uh, focusing our best lines on 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 which ads people are going to c- click on um, in text is a 
great opportunity. Uh, and then, of course, a uh, very top of mind for me is uh, now cars. And uh, I guess we'll talk about that uh, at another time. That's very exciting. So I'd love to hear a final call to action f- from you. And what I mean by that is you just mentioned people, uh, aspiring data scientists, people wanting to get into machine learning, deep learning. What would you su- suggest they do as a, as a path forward? Yeah. So uh, learning step one, I, I think making sure that you have that uh, that mathematical literacy and making sure that you understand what's going on underneath your algorithms and that you're not just kind of kind of throwing throwing algorithms that you heard work on the wall that makes a lot of difference especially it makes a difference uh, between when you're um, really solving a problem that nobody else can solve and when you're trying to do uh, or trying to recreate something that's been done before and you know i would not hesitate i, I sorry i would not uh, be hesitant about getting into this world of deep learning of using all of these new algorithms, uh, they're fast becoming the rule, as I mentioned earlier. And so the the students that are, are, are intellectually curious about messing around with these algorithms and figuring out which ones work are the ones that really end up uh, um, standing out when you're, when you're breaking into the industry. Fantastic. Mike, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you, Hugo. Thanks for joining our conversation with Mike about data science, fake news, and Fortune 500 companies. We saw how Mike is leveraging state-of-the-art deep learning architectures to build out a data science product that classifies text as news, editorial, satire, hate speech, and fake news, among others. We also saw what type of unique challenges Mike faced in his work at TACT, servicing the needs of Fortune 500 companies such as Starbucks. Make sure to check out our next episode a conversation with Julia Silgi, a data scientist at Stack Overflow with a PhD in astrophysics and an abiding love for Jane Austen. Julia and I will be taking a deep dive into data science, the written word, text mining, and natural language processing. How can data science be leveraged to inform business decisions around the written word, and what can it tell us about society? Join us next week to find out. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugo Bound and Datacamp at Datacamp. You can find all our episodes and show notes at datacamp.com slash community slash podcast.